following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. These are God's words. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. These are God's words. You can be seated. And uh, I just want to say good morning. To you, man, it's really a privilege to be able to be with you here at City Light Church. And uh, just as Brian was saying, me and our other pastor, uh, Chad, at the venue, man, we have just gotten the honor to be able to know Brian and Corey and some of y'all's team, and it's just really a privilege. We we love you guys. We're thankful for you. Uh, you came, I, I can't remember, it was six, it was about six months or so now, or, or more now that um, your pastor came and shared the word with our church, and we were so blessed by that, um, even to the point, brother, that we we still talk about that sermon. There's people in our congregation that still talk about what God showed us through that word that you shared that morning. And so I hope that, that God does the same for us as we open his word. And if you still have it open, uh, keep it open. If you didn't, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm 115 this morning. And as you're turning to that, I want you to I want you to think and consider this question with me this morning in a deep way and really really think about your life and what is the driving question of your life? What what is that thing, that question that you're trying to answer with your life and every decision that you make and every situation that you encounter and every every move that you can make in your life with everything that you can do in your time and with your resources? What is the driving question of your life? Another way to say it is like this. What are you seeking to build with your life? What are you seeking to build with your life? With every move that you make, with every step that you take, with every, every day that begins to go by and month and year, what are you building with your life? Now, some of us in this room, we're more proactive in thinking about that, right? We're planners, we're strategic planners, and we're thinking about our life and the course of our lives. But for some of us, we're not thinking about it. But I can guarantee you this, with each day that goes by, you are building something with your life. And there's a question inside of you that, is, that you're trying to answer that is driving you towards it. And I don't know how many of you have, have visited the beach. A lot of us probably have. You go to the beach. and how, Anybody in here like to build sandcastles? Big sandcastle builder? I'm talking about now, not when you were a kid. I'm talking about now. You know, there's like a whole, there's, there's, there's a big, it's a big deal out of making these elaborate sandcastles. Me and my wife spent some time overseas living in the Middle East in Dubai, and it was a beach town, and 
Man, sometimes they would go out there, they'd have sandcastle competitions and things like this where people would go out and build these elaborate, massive sandcastles. I mean, some of them were so nice. We were thinking about, what's the rent here? Can we move into this? I mean, this is, this is nice. This is bigger than our apartment that we're, that we're renting. They were, they were nice. But now the reality is when you see that, you ever looked at that sandcastle? Really what my thought was, my thought, this type of person I am, instead of appreciating the beauty of that, my thought is like, don't y'all know? Like, that's not going to last forever, right? It's not going to last forever. It's fun, it's beautiful, and it's a skill. But ultimately, we all know that what they're building at the end of the day, it's made of sand. It'll wash out. It's not going to last forever. And I think this morning, the truth that we all know is that we're all bent towards if we're not careful, living a life where what we're building is like the sandcastle that's going to wash out. We're all bent towards living our life with the aim of self-glorification, building ourselves and our reputation and our successes and our glory, not knowing that it leads to destruction. Ultimately, we're all building, we're at least bent towards building our own sandcastles. But we're going to see in God's Word this morning as we look at Psalm 115, and this is really what we're going to talk about. This is the main point. This is, this is the thing that we're going to look at that's coming from His Word is that this. We can live for the glory of God. We can live for the glory of God, which will be for our good, or we can live for self-glory, which ultimately is idolatry that will lead to death. I'm going to say that one more time. We can live for the glory of God, which is for our good. And we're going to look at that extensively this morning. Or we can live for self-glory, which ultimately is idolatry leading to death. So we looked this morning in Psalm 115 as it was read to us. And to give a little bit of context around this Psalm. It was written during a time in Israel's history we're not absolutely certain or sure about. It's not exactly known, but it's clearly a time when this nation of Israel is facing a time of testing. It's a time when the nations that are all around them are taunting them and saying, look, where's your God? You're having trouble. So maybe this is in exile or maybe this is they're about to face the exile, whatever it may be. It's not some victorious time in their life or in the history of Israel. And so this psalm is, is traditionally known to be used, as most of the psalms were used for different occasions, to be a warning or an encouragement to God's people, Israel. This psalm was, was known to be used during the time of, of Passover. That's the time where they're remembering how God delivered them from Egypt and brought them out of that. It's, it's meant to be a song of hope and a song of reminder. And ultimately it says this, God, you showed out for us before by what you did, right? And the way that you delivered us. You showed your glory. The nations around us, Egypt around us, ultimately by delivering us, they knew who you were. They knew your faithfulness and your love for us as your people. Because God had acted in those ways that glorified himself and it ended up being for the good of Israel. It was meant to be a reminder of them of those things that that mighty nation Egypt, it couldn't keep us from your protection. That big Red Sea, it couldn't keep us from your protection. That desert couldn't. Those Canaanites couldn't. But now they're in a situation where they're looking around and, and all of the people around them are taunting them and saying, where is your God? We can't see him. And the cry of God's people provides us a valuable lesson. Now think of where they're at in their point of history. These people of God who have seen his deliverance, and, but they're in a time now where like, where's your God? Your, your, your life is, 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 is so terrible. What you're going through right now, there's no evidence that God is showing favor into your life. 
What would you be praying at this point? What is the prayer? If you got honest with yourself, what would you be praying at this point in a point in life where everybody's looking around you, your situation, your circumstances are so bad that people are wondering if God even has his face or his hand upon your life? What would you be praying? And this is meant to be an encouragement for them because as they're going through this, the people of God are going through this, the Psalms meant to be that encouragement, that plea to God. And right off the bat in verse 1, we see that that is this. Their prayer is this. God, would you act on our behalf so that you are glorified? Not in a way that makes us seem great as a nation. Don't do that. Not to us. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. But act in a way that, that people will know that you have acted and that we have benefited. Do this for the sake of your steadfast love and for the sake of of your faithfulness. So here it is. This is what we see, a powerful truth through this word of God this morning that we see, that we have to glean from. And it's this, God, it's better that you help us in a way that glorifies you because your glory is always good for us. That was a prayer for them right off the bat in the first couple of verses of this psalm. God, it's better that you would help us in a way that glorifies you because we know that your glory, when your aim is your glory, it is always, always good for us. Now, that's a powerful prayer, right? And that's an, that's an easy prayer for us to, to say amen to. But if we're real with ourselves, sometimes that's a difficult prayer for us to pray when we're going through it. It's a difficult thing for us to be able to pray. And there's a couple of things I think that has to, if we want this to be the prayer of our hearts, the true prayer of our hearts, that God, not to us, but to your name, would you give glory? There's a couple of things that have to happen. One is this, and they're connected. One is that we have to surrender to the authority of God. And the second is by surrendering to the glory to God in what way? But that we would let God define our good. These are connected. You see in verse 3, what does it mean that we would surrender to the authority of God? Not to us, God, not to us, but to your name. Give the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? In verse 3, look at where where it's situated and where it is in this response to that question. Where is your God? Can't you do something to make your God do something for you so that your situation changes? And look at what the response is. Verse 3, our God's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Our God's not one that we take and we package and we put into something and we say, God, you do for us what we tell you to do. That's not how it works with the God of the universe that created all things, who is glorious in all things. The nations are saying, can't you do something that will put a smile on your God's face? Can't you twist his arms towards doing what you want him to do? And for all of history, whether God's people in the Old Testament or for us today, the answer to that question is always no. Our God's the creator of the universe who does what he pleases him. Now, there's good news in that, that he's about his glory, because that is always good for us. And it's connected to this truth. When we surrender to that authority of God, when we, when we get the order right, that it's not us telling God what to do and determining his ways, but it's God who is glorious and he is, he is providing for us all the, the answers to life. And then we, when we know that and surrender to that truth of the authority of God, Then we have to also do this. This is the way that we surrender. We say, God, you let your good, your definition of good reign in our lives. God, define my good. But that's humbling. That's humbling and that's hard. Letting someone or something else determine what will be good for us. That's difficult for us, right? That's so hard for us. That's 
And when I'm talking about good, I'm not talking about this sense of good and good, better, best. That's not, that's not the biblical good. That's not the good I'm talking about. I'm talking about good in the sense of something that's pleasing, something that's satisfying. When we talk about God being good, it's not, it's not that it's, it's good, better, best, but he's good. He's all-encompassing. He's good. He's, he's satisfying. He's something that will not disappoint. He's something that will bring us that sense of pleasure that is worth pursuing with our lives. And our lives, we're on auto mode. Every one of us, we're on auto mode to find the thing that is pleasing to us. We were made to be pleased. We were made to be fulfilled. That's the way that God made us. So it's no wonder we naturally desire to do is to take that order of business into our own hands of finding our own satisfaction, to determine the things in my life that will be good for me. But the problem with that is that our understanding of what is good is broken. It got messed up a long time ago in the garden. That's what got Adam and Eve. God had already told them what was good. He had already told them what would be right and good for them that would keep them close to him and keep them satisfied. But we know what happened in the garden, don't we? They thought that there might be something else out there that might be a little bit better. And they wanted to determine good for themselves. And we know where that got us. It got us in brokenness and sin and this world being broken and messed up and to the fact that all of us sitting here today, our, our, our ability to define good for ourselves is broken. We need to let God define our good. The truth we know is this. We don't get to determine all of our circumstances. We know that. Even when we try to take them under our control, we know we can't determine our circumstances. From what family you were born into, all the way to how you will die and all of a lot of things in between are out of our control and circumstances. And it scares the mess out of us, doesn't it? Will our life be good? Will our life be satisfying? Will our life be controllable if this is the case? So in response to that fear, we want to control it. We want to define our circumstances as much as possible to define our own good and our own satisfaction but the truth is this, that all of our desires for good are found in God. Our God's in the heaven. He does what he pleases, and that's good for us. You know, I have a four-year-old daughter. I have a two-year-old daughter. And can you imagine with me for a second, maybe you've got kids. What if my daughter got to determine everything that I, as her father and authority, does? If she got to make the rules for me. I can, I can see it in my four-year-old going something like this. Dad, I think from now on that you need to go to bed at about 6 o'clock. That's when you need to go to bed. And you know why you need to go to bed at 6 p.m.? Because that's when I want to go through and ravage the house of all of the candy and snacks that are in it. And I'll just go to bed. I'll fall asleep whenever I want to, but you need to go to bed at 6 o'clock. I can hear it. I can hear it going down like this with my four-year-old. Dad, you know, my rule that I'm going to make for you now is that um, you can help drive the car because I need you to reach the pedals, but I'm going to take the steering wheel, okay? Just let me, let me hang out with the steering wheel, right? We know that would be a mess. If my daughter could make the rules for me, her life would be a mess, right? The dangers that she would be in, the unhealth that she would be in. And if she can get that glimpse of understanding, that authority over her that I have, and that everything in my life that I'm directing her in, even the things that she doesn't like, that it's for her good, you know? 
that it's for her good. And we have that kind of father and we have that kind of authority and we can know that, that all of our desires are good or found in God and God's in the heaven and he does what he pleases. And here's why that's good for us because what God so chooses and what he so pleases to do is to reveal his glory, the height and the pinnacle of his glory and who he is at a bloody wooden cross where justice was upheld and where love was lavishly demonstrated and where his power was revealed. That's what he so pleases and chooses to do. And he was glorified in it and it was good for us. The height of the glory of God has been revealed in the person and the work of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it talks about this. Let me just read this for you in verses 4 and in verses 6. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. It's the glory of Christ, God's glory shown in Christ. In verse 6, it says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? Where do we come to the understanding of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Think about all the things you may know about the Old Testament where God revealed his glory. He revealed his glory through fire coming from heaven, through parting the Red Sea, bringing people back to, to life. All of these things that revealed his glory, but the pinnacle and the height of the glory of God is found in the face and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's glory is for our good. Man, that we would trust that this morning. And Israel's looking at that and they're saying in, in, in this first couple of verses in this psalm by way of an encouragement to a defeated Israel that's being taunted. Where's your God? Where's he at? Look, not to us. Our prayer is not to us. God, would you act in a way that glorifies yourself and we know it'll be good for us. How much more do we, knowing that we look to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, say, God, glorify yourselves in our lives because we know it is good for us. And that's when that prayer becomes for us real. God, it's better that you'd help us in a way that glorifies you because your glory is always good for us. What if that was really our heart? What if we really trusted the goodness of God that's been shown in the gospel? What if we, what if we really did? What if we really got to the point in every difficulty and every circumstance that we're facing that we so trusted the goodness of God when he shows his glory that, that our life was about that? God, how will you most be glorified in my life, in my decisions? When we live for the glory of God, it leads to our good and leads to life. And that's what's being communicated in this psalm. But then it moves in verse 4 into a warning. Moves into a warning as you look with me in verse 4 of this chapter. It says, They're idols, they're silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Verse 8, Those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them. The second big truth being communicated from this psalm this morning is this, that seeking self-glory leads to idol worship, which always ends in death. I want you to think about where they're at. They're in the middle of this real taunting, and they're, they're the difficult circumstances that are happening to them, and the people around them, where's God at? Where's he at? Why is he showing favor to you? Where's your deliverance 
at. And maybe for them, there's this temptation that would come into them. And if, you, if you're familiar with the people of Israel in the Old Testament, you know they fall into temptation a lot, right? There's a lot of highs and there's a lot of lows. And so maybe they're beginning to wonder, well, I wonder, where is God? What's he doing? Faith, you know, faithfulness, God says he's faithful to us. That'd look a whole lot different if it was left up to me, what his faithfulness would look at. And, and, and maybe I need to worship something that I can see. Maybe I need to worship something I can control. Maybe I need to make something. Maybe I need to see, do something that, that won't do what it pleases, but it will do what is pleasing to me. And that's what they're taunting them with. And in a way, these verses in verse 4 through 8 are a taunt back to that temptation of these other nations that have these gods that they've created for themselves. But yet, at the same time, it's a warning for Israel and it's a warning for us because we learn a few important things about self-glory and idolatry. I want to pause right here because a lot of times when when we think about idolatry in this way, we think about that's something that's not really for us. That's something that if you go on a long flight overseas that you'll experience and you don't experience it here. But there's so much to learn about what idolatry is and the fact that it's self-glory. It's something that we want to make for ourselves that we can touch and that we can taste, that we can control in our lives. Me and my wife, we lived overseas, as I mentioned, and we were, we were ministering among of people who literally for themselves crafted these idols that were made of, of different statues they made and they'd have them in their room and they're bringing food to them and the food, it never goes away. Because they don't really have mouths that can eat and partake. But it's here for us. Anytime that we create something in our lives, not a, not a physical thing, but we create something in our lives. It can be a motive. It can be something, an attitude. It can be a person. Anytime we create something that serves us, pleases us, and something that we can control, something we end up trusting and latching on to, and these things that are good things, but when they become these ultimate things in our lives, they become idols. Pastor Tim Keller, he wrote a book, This Understanding, to, to, to see how this idea of idol worship hits home for us in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, we have these hidden idols that are in our hearts that we sometimes don't call idols. And he gives categories to some of them. Sometimes we have these theological idols where we have these distorted views of, of God because of maybe some doctrinal errors. And, and God becomes this thing in a way that we can control and that we can manipulate by what we do. And that's a theological idol. We have sexual idols in our lives. We have political and economic idols Hey, this, this policy or this candidate is the solution. Anytime you start determining that the problem is something other than sin and the solution is something other than Jesus Christ and the gospel, then we're tempted to fall into that political idolatry. We have racial and national idols. We're familiar with those. We have relational idols. An example that maybe you're trying to live your life through your children. They've become something, right? That's easy. We can control them. And we can find a lot of fulfillment and satisfaction in them and their success. Or maybe it's a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. We have these relational idols, philosophical idols, cultural idols in our lives. What's a part of our culture? 
I think about Western individualism over community. But when we read this word and we see, as Pastor Brian was talking about being a family of God, we kind of, here in the West, it's easy for us to hold on to this individual idol that really my life and what I do and the decisions that I make are, are, don't affect anybody else that's around me. And, and that kind of becomes the thing that we're holding on to. My success, my personal success in life is, is what I'm going for. And it doesn't matter anybody else around me and what they're facing or the difficulties that they're going through. See, these are all things, deep idols within us. It could be an idol of power. Your desire is for power over relationships or over people. Your, your idol is a, a desire for approval. You live for approval. That's everything that you live for. That's the driving question behind your life is, will this be approved by others if I do this? Maybe your idol is comfort. I'll never, even if Christ was to call me to do that, and, 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 and I would never do that. It's too uncomfortable for me. Or the deep idol of control. You want control in everything. And here's what we learn from these self-glory idols that lead to death. Here's this. Items seem valuable. Any idol in your life is going to seem valuable. That's what it says. They're made of silver and gold. These are precious metals. They're going to seem valuable. They're not going to seem like things that are, that if you, if you taste them, they're going to lead to death. They seem valuable. They're attractive. They're things that you want to run after. But make no mistake about it, idols are man-made. That's what it says when it says they're the work of human hands. Our God's in the heaven. He does what he pleases. We didn't make him, so we can't control him. And our temptation is to say, let me make something or do something or, that I can control. They're man-made, and we make them all the time. Idols, but here's the warning in this. Make no mistake about it. Idols are dead. They're not living. That's what the, the play, they have mouths. They have eyes, ears, nose, hands, feet. They may have a throat, but they can't make a sound in their throat because they're not alive. They're dead. And here's the ultimate warning we learn and know about idols. When we make them, when we make them for ourselves, and when we trust in them, we become like them. That's what verse 8 is saying. Those who make them become like them. Become like them in what? Ultimately, that we will be led into death, what they are. And so do all who trust in them. So we have a choice today, church. As we see what's laid out in God's word in Psalm 115, will we chase after self-glory? Or will we chase after God's glory? Will we live our lives chasing after life and chasing after death and destruction and these things that we find to be temporarily happy for us? Or will we take seriously the encouragement this morning from God's word in Psalm 115 and say, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name, give the glory. What would it look like if you honestly asked the question at the beginning? What's the driving question behind your life? Well, what if, what if we were able to really truly surrender to the glory and the goodness of God, trusting that his glory is always for our good? And we asked this with our lives. It was the driving question of our lives. How will God be glorified most in my life? With everything. With every decision that you made. What if you, you were stopping and saying, this decision... How will God most be glorified? I've got option A and I've got option B, and it's nothing that's spelled out directly in the Word, but it's a decision that I've got to make. We make decisions, hundreds of decisions on a daily basis. How will God most be glorified in my life? Another way to say it, 
what will show his allegiance to me and that he's my ultimate satisfaction? What was that was the driving question in your life with everything that you did? What if that was the driving question with your time? We get so much time that God gives to us. And when you laid out your week and you look at how many hours are in a week and, and the driving question behind what you were going to do with your time, and especially the spare time that you have, was this. How will God most be glorified in my life through what I do in this time that I have? How will God be most glorified in my life with what I do with this money that he's provided for me? What will I do how, with these relationships that God has given to me, these friendships or these family relationships or these church relationships or these relationships with those in the community? What, 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 will, what if I ask, what, God, how will you most be glorified through those relationships and what I do in those relationships? What if that was truly the driving question of our lives? So that every time that God was leading us by his spirit, that we look back and say, I said yes to God. I said yes to the path that he was leading me down because I knew it would be, you know, it was something that was difficult for me. It was something that I didn't want to do, but I knew that God would be glorified. And I trusted that it would be for my good. What if that was the reality? And it can be. It's possible for us. Because as we talked about, the pinnacle of the glory of God has been shown in the face of Jesus Christ who died on a wooden cross, who was beaten, crown of thorns was placed on him, his blood dripped into the ground. But praise God that victory was given and shown that death could not defeat our God who's in the heaven and does whatever he pleases. You know the beautiful truth that we see, and we see this in Romans 8, that, that Jesus does. He gives that spirit to us, that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that power to say yes to the glory of God. It says this in Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we can choose because his spirit is dwelling in us. We can choose to live for the glory of God. We can experience life by saying no to the temptation of self-glory and building for ourselves these things that are success and power and control that are ultimately sandcastles that will wash away. Because we have his spirit, we can turn from idol worship, which leaves us empty and dead, and say yes to God and pray this prayer. God, it's better that you would act in a way that glorifies you. God, may, may you be glorified, not to us, not to me, not to my life with this decision or this relationship that I have, but to your name, give glory because I know that you're good. God, define my good. May that be our prayer this morning. Would you pray with me? God, may that be true of our hearts and of our lives. God, we know that we are weak, and you know that we are weak. God, and our, our heart is bent on turning away from you, on seeking good for ourselves and determining good. But we're here today, gathered in this place, to admit we are broken sinners whose radar of what is truly good and satisfying is broken, and we need you to define that for us. God, thank you for the proof, for the demonstration of your love 
and that your glory is always good for us by sending Jesus to die for us. By raising him from the dead and that all of that shows your power and your goodness and your greatness and it also provides a way for us to know you. It is your love demonstrated in a way that we can tangibly see it and know it. Thank you for your spirit that you give to us that enables us to know that you're good, to taste and see that you're good and experience that you're good so that we say yes to you, so that we pray, God, you act in a way that glorifies yourself. God, we thank you and we love you. God, I pray that you would help us to respond appropriately this morning as you would have us to. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.